1: to this Bible study. We're continuing our walk through the book of Deuteronomy. And tonight we're going to be covering chapters 5 through 8. 5 is a repeat of the Ten Commandments which we've covered in Leviticus and also in Exodus. So I'm not going to go into much detail over these. But 6, 7, and 8 are the preamble to this long speech that Moses is going to give them. And it's just beautiful. I hope that you had a chance to read them um, because they are really... Uh, a beautiful text in the scriptures to read uh, written by a man who uh, is at the end of his life and who's sharing with us what he has learned having carried forward for 40 years a people that was stubborn, who was rebellious and who caused him much grief but he stayed with them because of his love of, of God. Because at the end of the day, remember that saints are men and women who are worried about God. They love God so much that they worry about it, and Moses is one of them. So, the um, this discourse that we're going to study tonight in the book of Deuteronomy then begins in chapter four, verses forty-four, and will run all the way through chapter twenty-eight, verse sixty-nine. And the main subject is the laws that he communicated to people to the people at Moriah at Moab I'm sorry in preparation for Israel's entry into the promised land so again remember this is a commentary on the laws and some new laws will be added but it's truly a commentary in, on the laws and they reflect what is in Moses's heart what is really important for him and What we said last time is that he started by talking about the history, reminding the Israelites about these 40 years of history. It's good for us, as we said last time, to remind ourselves of our own personal history since we were born till today. All the good things that God had done for us. A friend of mine sent me a beautiful quotation. In this quotation, this man says, I think his name is John Piper. He said, God is doing 10,000 things for you today. And we're maybe aware of three. God is busy doing 10,000 things for you today. And we're maybe aware of three. So God is working in your life every day. We just have to learn to hear that language of love in the silence of our hearts. People you meet, events that happen to you, hardships, difficulties, joys are all gifts from God to lead you to heaven. Imagine, if you will... That your ancestor 2,000 years ago went to the Bank of Tokyo and deposited the equivalent of a dollar 2,000 years ago, right? With 4% compound interest. What do you think it'd be turned now into? Right? Well, how much more into infinity? Those hardships, those difficulties that God sends your way, that's your dollar. Any compounding interest? Is the pain. But it's going to grow into infinity and beyond, like a famous man, Toy, said. All right, so one key uh, fact that we need to stress here is that there was never a doubt that God is the author of the laws. Now, that's a distinctive feature of the Israelite law. Elsewhere, in in the ancient Near East, the laws of society were believed to be the product of human minds, For instance, the the Mesopotamian laws were the kings. Nowhere else will you find someone saying this is God speaking. Those are the laws of God. So in order for that to happen, Moses had to establish before the Israelites his credentials and reminded them at Moab when God came over the mountain, they grew afraid and moved back and told Moses, you will speak to him. So Moses went up the mountain for forty, 40 days and spoke to God, and brought, brought back then the Ten Commandments, and after that, Moses could walk into the tent and speak to God and face would glow. So he reminds them, "These are not my laws. You don't do that because I, Moses are telling you to do it, you do it because God is asking you to do it. So that is a really key feature. Of um, this text that while it is a commentary written by one man, it is nevertheless the word of God. So in chapter 6, Moses begins to transmit the remaining laws to the people from chapter 6 to 11 with a preamble. And he urged them to an exclusive loyalty to God, to love and reverence Him. And obedience to His commandments. So let's walk through this chapter and pick out specific keywords or specific parts of verses that are really significant for us. Actually, before I do so, you will see in this chapter there is one of the most important verses in all of Scripture for the Old Testament, "Hear, O Israel, Shema Israel." We know what Shema means. Those of you who speak some version of Arabic, right? Shma, hear, literally. Hear, not just hear the noise, pay attention, right? That's in chapter 6. And uh, what is really important is that, according to Zechariah, what is being asked of Israel, when Moses speaks, will be asked of the whole world later. So, for instance, in Zechariah 14.9, he says, The Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day the Lord shall be one, and his name one. Meaning that for all humanity, Yahweh and his name will stand alone, unrivaled, as um, Zechariah says earlier. He adds in verse 13:2, I will erase the very names of the idols from the land, they shall not be uttered anymore. Now, this is still God's plan. It may not look like it to us, but it's still his plan. The Lord is king over all the nations. Something worth repeating. The Lord is king over all the nations. And this understanding is also consistent with, for instance, Isaiah and Zephaniah. So in Isaiah chapter 2 verse 11 and 17, The Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. For then I will make the people pure of speech, so that they they all invoke the Lord by name and serve him with one accord. That's in Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 9. All right. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting with verse 1. Moses tells them that this is the commandment, statutes, and the ordinances which the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them. The Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them. How do you hear? How do we hear? By doing. How do we hear? By doing. You don't do? You're not listening. Make sense? Now, it's not something you have to teach any of the moms sitting here, right? Do your bed. Yes, mom. Half an hour later, but it's still not done. Didn't I tell you to make the bed? Weren't you listening? There you go. So how do we hear? By doing. That's key. The laws are not a set of things that we just have to memorize and know them, and we're done. It's by doing them, by living them. And what is true of Israel is even more true of us today. All right. Now, what is the first thing, therefore, that comes out of Moses' mouth about these commandments, statutes, and ordinances? Verse 2. First thing. Fear. Fear the lord your god you and your son and your son's son how do you fear the lord your god you tremble right no by keeping all his statutes and his commandments so watch how do we fear the lord by doing ah huh. how do we hear How do we fear? So, the fear of the Lord... These days, we're so afraid of the fear of the Lord. We almost need a psychiatrist to sit down and explain to us... What that fear is and what it isn't. But at the end of the day, it's not that complicated. I'm going to try to explain it to you in really simple terms. This is how it goes. God is... Well, well, He's God. And we are not God. You're with me so far? He is the strong one. We are the weak one. Yeah? If he stops thinking about us, we're gone. And, at the end of our life, we will render account of every minute we spent before him. Those are the parameters That's the reality that we're facing. Let me put it to you this way. You go to work, you have a boss, and the boss calls you into his office to ask you to give a status update about a project you're working on. Would you walk in unprepared? Would you? Okay. Would you walk in in your PJs? Would you? Why? Exactly. There is a certain fear. Why? Because he has power over you. He can fire you. Now, I'm right now taking it at the very basic. I'm not talking about personal relationship and love and any of that stuff. I'm just talking about survival. That's plain and simple. If God controls your life, and remember, all of us, we should all remember one simple fact... God is going to kill us. Yeah? Anybody doubts that truth? God is going to kill us. Why am I saying that? Because Scripture says so. Right? Who can add or subtract one day to his life? God is going to kill us. Wouldn't you fear somebody who has that power over you? Okay. So we can do one of two things. We can do the stupid thing, which is to try to run away from him, right? We do that quite a bit. Or we could do the smart thing and say, Okay, he has that power over me. I can't take the power away from him. Let me, at the very least, get on his good side. I'm just talking basic human psychology. Why am I saying this? Because to Israel, for most Israelites, that was God. He's the one who fought their wars. He's the one who sent the serpents to kill them. He's the one who sent the manna to feed them. He had life and death power over them. He condemned a whole generation to die in the wilderness. They all died in the wilderness. What does that mean? He killed all of them in the wilderness. Yeah? Wouldn't you then try to be on the good side of somebody that powerful? Makes sense, doesn't it? That's what Moses is saying. At the very basic level... Be logical about who you're dealing with. If God tells you, jump, jump. Yeah. Then you can ask the question, why am I jumping? But jump first. Back to obedience, right? Okay. So, fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is nothing more than reality. A true account of who we are and who he is. Now, there's a d- different kind, more nobler kind of fear we're going to talk about later. Right? The one that stems from love. The one that says, I love you so much, I do not want to offend you. I don't want to end to your wounds, O Jesus. But oftentimes, and I'll tell you this, especially women, you need to be careful with that. We can fall into sentimentalism. Right? We can have this sort of romantic or sentimental relationship with Jesus... And we hide behind it because we don't do any of the things he's asked us to do. We come to church, we kneel, we're fervent, we sing. And if somebody says something to us sideways, we let them have it. How do we hear? By doing. Yeah. How do we fear? By doing. Notice not by cowering, not by having an emotional breakdown, by doing. That's the logical sense. Okay, you want me to? Do? I'll, I'll get on it right now. I get it done. Now, God is far better than that, but I'm just the very basic level, right? Okay. Verse 3. Hear, therefore, Israel. Be careful to do them. Be careful. Careful has two meanings. First one is don't lose sight of them. Have them before your eyes and always remember to do them. The second one is care full, do them with utmost care, do them with utmost care, and that's not easy for us to do, not easy for us to do, especially if we have a task that we have to do over and over and over and over again, and we have a dislike to it, washing the dishes, cleaning a bed, dealing with someone who is unpleasant. Day after day after day at work. Having to deal with these people. Do it with the utmost care. Because you're not dealing with these people. You're dealing with someone far more powerful. Okay. Why do you think Moses is insisting on this? Why does he start this way? Not just because it's important, but because he knows our human nature. He's been with these people for 40 years and he's a teacher. He understands the psychology of a human being. And he knows that we are going to be careless. We're not going to do it. And we're not going to fear the Lord. They did not. Neither do we. Neither do we. Because if we did fear the Lord, none of us would commit any sin. None of us would commit a sin if we really feared the Lord. But we don't really. So Moses knows that and he's basically telling them the essentials of a true Christian living, Jewish living back then, Christian today. St. Charbel, whose portrait is over here, was a monk, a hermit in Lebanon. And after his death, for about 70 years his body exuded water and blood. They had to change his coffin twice. And there are so many miracles in his name that it's just impossible to tell all of them. It's just incredible. While he was alive, he as a hermit had uh, a number of hermit companions. A hermit would not live all by himself. There'd be somebody living with him. And his companion said, I used to observe him working on his virtues. And as he walked, worked from one virtue to the other, patience, meekness, gentleness, obedience, you know, fortitude, the big virtue is the really important one, right? I would think this is his crown jewel. This is the one that he masters. And then I watch him practicing this other virtue and he would do it just as well. Your virtues are your Garden of Eden. Three theological virtues, faith, hope, and charity. Those are given to us in baptism. Four cardinal virtues, justice, temperance, prudence, fortitude. Justice, temperance, prudence, and fortitude. Right? Those are your garden, my garden of Eden. This is what we till. This is what we guard. This is where we work. Now, Adam... Had Eve with him in the garden to be his helper, we have someone far superior to her. Her name is Mary. She is working with us in our garden to till and guard. That's how we do. That's how we fear. At the end of the day, every action we take with others, we must see with our interior eye as reflected In our garden, have we planted a weed? Have we pulled one? That's how we hear, we fear, we do. It's the interior work of your soul that matters the most to God. And that's why if at home, let's say you don't have an important job, you're not noticed by the world, nobody knows who you are. But if you're at home and you see a piece of paper on the floor and your hips are hurting you and you bend down and you pick it up, And you say, for the love of you, Jesus. That one action on your part can be more pleasing than if you went to Africa and fed millions. God does not judge by outward results. It's the work of our souls that he's really interested in. Verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. So notice how Moses progresses. He starts with fear and progresses to love. Isn't that odd? Isn't that odd? In our culture, especially today, do you ever go to school and hear a teacher say, Children, I'm going to teach you to fear me. And then once you fear me, you're going to love me. Nobody says that, right? But Moses is describing to us the truth about this matter. You and I only love only love that that we really care about. And there is nothing that we care more about than someone who has the power to kill us. And when that person ends up being a lovable, as lovable as God is and as beautiful as God is, We come to love Him. But fear must proceed. Why? Because fear forces us to do it simply because He asked, not because we're getting a reward. You understand? Fear forces us to do it because He asked. Therefore, we're showing ourselves to be willing to hear. And when that happens, God then invites us to enter deeper into relationship with him, which is a relationship of love. Right? So fear precedes love because fear allows us to exercise obedience, allows us to exercise trust and faith, even though we are not yet receiving anything in return. And when we enter this in a relationship of love with him, when he bestows upon us the knowledge of himself and leads us to know him more and more. And we get to love him, now love impels us to move forward. Love becomes like the wind in a sail. Before, with fear, I was sitting in my little boat and I was rowing. I had to do it with my hands. It was the work of my, the sweat of my bro that made me obey. But when love comes, love is the wind in the sails and the boat moves easily. And we make more progress. But, like St. John said, my beloved, love is this, that God loved us first. So it's an invitation. By invitation only do we enter into this deeper relation. But notice this progression that Moses goes through. It's the one that we all go through. You fear by doing. You hear by doing. I fear by doing. I hear by doing. And as I continue to do that, God invites me to enter into this relationship of love with Him. All right. So now, once you do that, once you love God with your heart, your soul, your might. Heart, soul, and might. Might refers to the will, right? The doing part. The heart refers to your emotions, And the soul refers to your intelligence. So it's the whole person who loves God. That's a whole program for our life. Once you do that, what would be the next step? What is Moses saying? You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall teach them diligently to your children. How do we teach diligently to our children? Pardon? Pardon? By doing. Very good. By doing. Right? We should talk to the children also. We should talk to the children also. Recommend to the men who are fathers, and if you still have younger children at home, do some prep work on the readings of the Mass on Sunday. Sit down. Read some text around that reading. Try to understand it a little bit better. And then make sure there is a family breakfast, brunch, lunch, whatever it is, where you're sitting with your children and you ask the question to them What was the reading about today? And you open their minds and their hearts to understand the reading better. The kids will take notice. Dad has been listening. This must be important. You're teaching your children. You teach your children when you pray with them, when you pray with them, when we sit down and pray as a family, when the children see us, especially men, especially men, somehow we've got this sort of really, um, let me be a little bit blunt, idiotic idea that prayer is the province of the women. We men are better spending our time discussing politics. Like, that's gonna change anything. But the prayer stuff, that's for the women to teach the children. We're not, no, no. You, the kids are gonna learn when they see us, the men, praying. That's how our children learn from the men in the home. So, praying with the children, praying for the children. You shall teach them diligently, diligently, with diligence. That means with great care, with attention. And with constancy, we don't give up. We continue all the time. Very important. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. Why is Moses so insistent? Because he knows that's what it's going to take for us to keep on listening and doing. We need this constant reminder. We must be constantly reminded of this. Friends, what do you talk about with your friends, when you invite them over? What is the subject of your conversation? Do you make space to talk about the things of God? Do you make space to discuss what you've heard, what you've studied, what you've learned? Do we share that with others? Or is our conversation when we get together about all the other things that at the end of the day won't matter much? We need mutual encouragement in our journey in the faith. Therefore, we should use these occasions when we get together with good, godly friends to talk about the things that matter. You see how Moses progresses through this. This is the man who's been observing all these people for all these years. and He has this deep experience that he's sharing with them, reminding them of what was really important. Okay, so now he progresses further, and he says to them, when the Lord your God, verse 10, brings you into the land, which He swores to your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, He swores to your father, not you. Notice, they're receiving it on account of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the promise that God made. So meaning that they're receiving it undeservedly. And He's going to give you great and godly cities, which you did not build, and houses full of good things, which you did not fill, and cisterns hewn out, which you did not hew, and vineyards and olive trees, which you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, He mentions five things. So the fullness. Take heed. Notice the sentiment. Not, then rejoice and be merry and be glad and be happy and enjoy. and Take heed. Take heed. What is He saying? All these good things that are given us. You win the lottery. Somebody gives you a car. Um... You do something and it brings you a lot of money. Take heed. Be careful. Be careful. Why? Because lest you forget the Lord. Lest you forget the Lord. This is why, my friends, any government which is fundamentally a socialist government, who's going to provide you with the things of life, is a danger to your soul because you can forget the Lord. You can depend on the government. Any life of leisure where you're not working hard, when you're not doing something for others, is a danger to your soul. Why? Because you will forget about the Lord. Moses understands how easy it is for us to forget. That's why he's insistent. He repeats again, You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve Him and swear by His name. And so, in this chapter, therefore, what he is doing is reminding them of the basis. Fear the Lord listen to Him by doing, then as you do that, He will lead you into a relationship of love with Him. And when you get to love Him with all your heart, He will bless you. But take heed that these blessings do not turn against you, lest you forget the Lord. Right? This is the whole mystical plan for our souls written in that chapter. That's why I suggest you Reread it slowly because it's really worth reading it. So then, he starts, therefore, by dealing with the dangers to faith and obedience that might arise during or after the conquest of the land. Because now, in chapter 7, he's going to have to tell them, God is sending you to this land, he's going to give it to you, but it's not going to be easy. It doesn't mean, here it is on, this, on a silver platter, enjoy. It's a lot of hard work. You are going to conquer that land by the sweat of your brow, because you know what? That curse from the fall never was never taken away by the sweat of your brow. And by, by the way, this is why Jesus sweated blood. A careful study of the passion will show you that he actually took upon himself all the curses of the um, um, Genesis, all of them, the thorns the sweat, giving birth, so to speak, on the cross. All of them he took on. So that is not going to go away. So my friends, if you are thinking today about your situation, if you're anxious about your situation, if you're anxious about what is going on in the world, recognize that God seldom intervenes supernaturally to fix a problem. But also recognize that He is with you. And Jesus said, Do not be afraid. Because He is with you. He is with us, Emmanuel. God is with us. That's how He expected them to conquer the land. That's how He expects us to fix the problems today. May not happen in a, in a, in a decade, it may take centuries. But eventually, the world will go back. God, because the world has been redeemed by God. So please do not let the events of our day, however terrible they may be, snuff your hope and your joy. God is with you. Who can be against? That's important for all of us to remember, especially as we year up to the seasons of Christmas. Israelites had to face a couple of challenges. They had to go and conquer Canaanite lands. And when they had to conquer this Canaanite land, there was a ban that Moses pronounced against the Canaanites. The Israelites had to destroy them utterly. And that meant men, women, children, cattle, everything. You leave no survivors. When you read this to our ears today, obviously this sounds horrific. Horrific. If you understand that text in its context, I mean in its historical context, you would see that a ban was a typical thing pronounced by a king against something that was considered or perceived to be a danger that cannot be contained. When a danger could not be contained, the solution was really simple. Get rid of it completely. In the case of Israel, God knew and in fact it happened historically, that when the Israelites will go into this land, they're going to be attracted to the Canaanite way of doing things, to their religion, and they're going to forget about God. So this ban that was set against them was a way to protect Israel from that danger. And it is also always important to remind ourselves that at the end of the day All of us die when God wills it. All of us die when God wills it. Thy will be done, right? Well, that's what it is. So, um, the worst thing can happen to someone isn't dying in a war, or neither is it to be killed by a sword. That's not the worst that can happen. The worst thing can happen to someone is to grow in a land where every action this person is taking. Is deepening his punishment in hell. That's the worst. The worst thing can happen is for someone to be living in a land so cut off from God that everything he's doing deepens his punishment in hell. Because there are, just as there are levels of glory in heaven, there are levels of damnation in hell. You all, we all know that in heaven, Our Lady, Our Lady's glory is unparalleled, no one will ever reach her level. In the glory of Our Lady. So, the combined glory of all the angels and all the saints is less than the glory that Mary received when she was born. Saint Joseph, her spouse, is obviously up there. And then there is a gradation. Make sense? Okay. Well, in hell, same thing. There are degrees of suffering. What I said was that the worst thing that can happen isn't to die by a sword. The worst thing that could happen is for us to be living in a land where what we do, the actions we do, are sinful and deepen our punishment in hell. Right? So in the case of Sodom and Gomorrah, when God punished Sodom and Gomorrah, in one sense it was an absolute punishment, but in another sense it was also merciful because he was now preventing babies from being born and being damned in a place where that would have been their fate. You understand? Just as a man can be corrupt, so can a whole society be corrupt. And when a society is corrupt, it only breeds corruption. It takes the grace of God to come and renew. It takes saints. This is what we have today, which we didn't have back then. That's why the church never pronounces a ban, because we have a power that is unparalleled in all of the universe. It's called the sacraments. It's called the mass. It's called the church. But back then, none of that was present. That's why those bands were there. So in chapter seven, verse seven through 16, Moses appealed to them to the Israelites to avoid complacency. It's easy for us to become complacent if we're doing something out of rut, out of habit and only for habit's purpose, what I call the car wash Catholics. You wash your car, right, you wash your car regularly, you go through the motions. Well, you come to Mass, go to the motions, and that's that. that. Well, that will lead you to become complacent. What does it mean? It means you have no qualm watching um, rated R movies that have sinful content. It means you have no qualm watching some programs that have swearing and vulgarities in them. It means you have no qualm uh, allowing your daughter to dress them modestly, It means you have no qualm allowing your son to go, who's a teenager, and go sit with other teenagers who are girls, and you're not watching over their, the, the, the purity of their souls and their, their eternal destiny. That's complacency. Because it's hard work at the end of the day. It's hard work to be always there for your children, always protective, especially when they don't like it. Especially when they let you know they don't like it. Well, usually the boys brood. It's the girls you have to put up with. Because they're sneaky and smart and very, very, very intelligent. So, you have to stay there and repeat this and not give up. You know what? At the end of the day, you can say, okay, it's not my life. It's yours. You want to go mess it up? Go ahead. Go ahead. That's complacency. Why? Because at the end of the day, I am not doing this for my children. I am doing this. We're doing this because we hear, because we fear, because we love. We're always in a conversation with God. That's why we're doing it. Complacency, you've done all the right things. You heard God. You feared God. You loved God. You got, he blessed you. Life is good. Complacency is waiting for you. The difference is that complacency is the kind of spiritual vice that are harder to fight than what you might consider to be physical vice. At least somebody who's dealing with lust or dealing with um, gluttony can see that. If you sit down and eat a, you know, you eat three pint of ice cream, the evidence are right there in front of you and in your tummy. You feel it. Complacency is in the soul, it's in the mind, right? Much harder to pick up on. So, that's why it's important for uh, us to be always watchful and prayerful. Next, verses 17 through 26. Israel need not fear the Canaanites despite their numbers. That's something we can definitely, definitely um, identify with especially if, if you're coming from the Middle East, Christians are a minority, Muslims are the majority. Hey, what can we do? When we say that, when, we're saying, when we express ourselves this way, hey, what can we do? We need to recognize that that's a mild form of atheism. It's a mild form of atheism. Because when we say, what can we do? we're ignoring the one who can do all and who's with us. Emmanuel. God is with us. It does not mean he is just present amongst us. It means he's taken our side. That's what God is with us means. So, whether it's numbers, whether it's illness, whether it's loss of employment, poverty, whether it is difficulty, In marital relationships, whether it is a tragedy in the family, the loss of a child, no matter what the difficulty is, the Christian answer is not fear of the the difficulty. That's never a Christian answer. That's the answer of a weak man and a weak woman, somebody who's struggling through their faith. And we're all there. God understands that. But when we have to set our sides on the goal, the goal is for us to take it with complete peace of soul. How do you do that? How do you do that? To receive the peace of soul, which is a supernatural gift, we have to first admit that we cannot do that. On our own strength, we cannot do that. God can bestow that upon us. Right? God can bestow that upon us. So, what do we do? We ask and we wait. And while we're waiting, what are we doing? Right. We're hearing, do we're fearing, we're loving by doing. That's how you do it. Um, Take a man who is really ugly physically. He's ugly. And let's assume he's in love with this very beautiful woman. And he comes to her door the first day and plays a rose. And she screams and faints when she sees him. He's that ugly. But he's not perturbed. Comes back the second day, and he leaves another rose... And a basket of fruits. And a third day. And the fourth day. And the whole year. And five years. Every day. Don't you think he might have a chance of winning her over? Why? What did he reveal through the, all of this? Beauty. There's beauty in his soul. And if she can go past the physical barrier, and see that beauty, she might fall in love with him. Yeah? Bear with me. We are that ugly guy. Mary is that beautiful woman. If every day, if we seek that peace of soul, and every day, despite our trials and difficulties, we do one action, one action, just one, one, small, insignificant, wash a spoon, Pick up something from the floor. Smile to somebody. But one action, thinking, Mary, here's your rose today. And we persevered. Don't you think you're going to win her over? Here, fear, love, do. Be constant. Be diligent. Never stop. So, verse 3, he tells them, You shall not make marriage with a Canaanite, giving your daughters to their sons, or taking their daughters from your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me. You shall break down their altars. Your God had chosen you to be a people for his own possession. It is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath which he swore to your fathers that the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations. We're not only working for ourselves. We're not only tilling the soul for ourselves. We're doing it for the generations to come. Just as some in past generations did that so we today have faith, we must do the same. We must do the same. And that consciousness of our connectedness, in the the creed we say, we believe in the communion of the saints. That's what it means. Communion of the saints. We're not just doing it for ourselves, we're doing it for others those we know, those we don't know. That stretches your heart and teach you to love the way God wants us to love. So God does all these things because He's faithful, because He loves us. Verse 13, He will love you, bless you, multiply you. You shall be blessed above all the peoples. There shall not be male or female barren among you. Notice the language of uh, blessings and fruitfulness of the womb. Children. So, this is why um, if we are not open to life, we're simply not listening. No matter what else we do. No matter what else we do. Because when we are not open to life, we're basically telling God how he should bless us. God doesn't give us that choice. He doesn't say, and I will come to you and will ask you. And you will write me a multiple choice of the things that you want. And I shall give it to you. We wish he would have said that. That's not what he said. I'll make you fruitful. That's the blessing. So in that respect, those of you who are contemplating marriage, you need to think about that. You hear, you fear, and you do. It might be difficult to make a choice where the mom is going to stay home and take care of the kids, and there will be only one income. It's hard. It may not be what God wants for you, but that's a question you need to bring to Him. Because you know deep down that's what He wants. That traditional structure of the family is what He thinks is best for us. Why? Because the women are going to gain their salvation through bearing children, Genesis, and the men through the sweat of their brow. And even though, even though some of us, I think from time to time, I will not be bad if my wife is working, I can go fishing. We hear, we fear, we love, we do. Then in chapter 8, Moses continues to address dangers to faith that might arise in the promised land. Prosperity may lead Israel to forget its dependence on God. And then Moses' argument is based on history. Israel's experience in the wilderness showed that man depends on God, not solely on natural forces for sustenance. This this business of depending on God means that we're never in charge. means that God is in charge. And it's really hard for us to accept when we say God is in charge. So verse 1, All commandment which I command you this day, you shall be careful to do. Again, careful. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you these 40 years that he might humble you testing you to know what was in your heart. What was the purpose of these this journey in the wilderness? To humble them. Why God sends difficulties and trials our way? To humble us. Why? Why? Why does God want to humble us? So we go to to heaven. But why does he need to humble us so we can go to heaven? We go to to him. But why? Why does he need to humble us so we can go to him? Yes, so I don't think I'm above... But why would I think that I'm above him or God? Isn't that illogical? It's our fallen nature. Because he knows our fallen nature. It isn't our nature. It's our fallen nature. God does not make junk. When he created Adam and Eve, they did not suffer from all these issues. But when they broke away from him, incurred original sin, then every baby that is brought into this world does not have in his soul faith, hope, and charity. So when you grow up without faith, without hope, without charity, obviously, the center of the world is you. You. In fact, there was a priest who did a beautiful study on the baby in the womb. And his point, his intuition is just beautiful. I lost that book. I need to buy it back. If I can remember the title, though. Um, is this. When the, when the baby is formed in the uterus, God's plan was for that baby to be never alone in the uterus. If there were no original sin, then God's grace would be present with that baby from the very beginning. And therefore the soul, which is rational, would realize that she's never alone. But because of the lack of grace, the baby is alone. And who does he have to focus on? Himself. Now, that is not imputed to the baby. The baby is not responsible for that. So, God knows our weaknesses. He knows how difficult it is for us to perform one single act of goodness. He knows that. So, He has to help us. He has to help us recognize that we need Him. Like someone said a little earlier, right? Otherwise, we're not going to Him. How do we know we, we need Him? Is when our The problem with ego, what is the problem with pride? Why is pride the root of all sins? It takes you away from God. Yeah, but I mean any of the other sins will take you away from God. Here's the problem with pride. Pride is the only sin you cannot see. I'm going to show you. We can't see pride. Watch. I'm prideful. I'm full of pride. Well, since I said that, it's an act of humility. But how do I know that that act of humility is not an act of pride? But if I recognize it's an act of pride, am I not humble? But if I think that I'm humble, am I not proud? We go in circles. Because pride is like a shadow in your back. It's the hidden side of the moon. You can never see it. Others see it in you. Not you in yourself. So it's an eminent obstacle to your journey towards God. I'll give you some clues how we can... Realize we say pride. Because even though we cannot see the hidden side of the moon, we know it's there, right? I'll give you examples. You're having an argument with your wife over the salad. There are too many cucumbers in it. You don't like it. And probably because you had a hard day, things didn't go well, and so the salad becomes the focus of your ire. And then you say to your wife something like this. You always pride. Right there. Right there. She says something to you and you answer, but that's not what I said. Pride. Right there. All these sentences that we say are the symptoms of our pride. So God sends trials our way because then we can recognize what? I'm not as strong as I thought. I'm not as brilliant as I thought. I'm not as good as I thought. I need him. So therefore, when he, when he sends trials your way, he loves you. Yes. No. Not by critiquing and commenting on a salad. If I, if I were to say um, to my wife, let's say she had prepared that salad. By the way, this is a completely fictitious example because she's right here. I just want to let you know. Um, if I were to say to my wife, Thank you for preparing the salad. Um, In the future, could you please put a little bit less cucumber because I would prefer it this way. Now, there is control. I'm being aware that my ire should not be an excuse to bash her because I don't like the cucumbers in the salad. You see that? But if I want it my way, I want to make it clear I want it my way, and everybody else has to get in line or else. That's right. So... Again, you shall be careful to do, as I said in verse 1, you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you, right? Be careful, remember. He, he did all this to you so He might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart. Really, so you can find out what was in your heart, because He knows what was in your heart, right? He humbled you and let you hunger. But when you hungered, what did He do? He gave you manna from heaven. So recognize this. When you're suffering over something, when you're yearning for something, God is going to purify that desire in your heart and He's going to give you what you're desiring. Because God is good. He will never put a desire, a good, godly desire in your heart just to torture you. Oh, young Elsa over here, she's yearning for holiness. I'm going to let her suffer. Ha, 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 ha. God is not like that, right? He makes he basically creates a hole in your heart, taking out your flesh out. Sometimes it feels exactly like that. And once the hole is as deep and as big as he wants it to be, then he overflows it. Just be careful to do what he's asking you to do. Be persevere in what you're doing. Be patient. Hold fast to your faith, be careful and diligent in doing all the things that God is expecting you to do. And then He will surely reward you. I'm just paraphrasing what Moses is saying. And then he adds, you need to know that man does not live by bread alone. Where is that coming from? Where do we hear the same word? John. Gospel of St. John, right? St. John and Jesus took that straight out from Deuteronomy. Man does not live by bread alone, but that man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Very strange sentence there in that text, because everything else is very concrete, very clear. And then suddenly he just soars. You see, he reveals something about himself. About the height of his spiritual life. What does it mean? Man does not live by bread alone, but... So notice, you don't live by bread alone. I might have said, yeah, we live by cucumbers and parsley and chicken, right? I don't want to eat bread All Okay. Man does not live by bread. So what does it mean by bread then? Everything material. Everything we produce. Everything good and physical that God gave us. Man does not live by bread alone. We live by bread, but not only by bread. Not only by bread. Okay. But, but, man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. What proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord? So in the Old Testament, three things proceed out of the mouth of the Lord. Three things. The commandments that God gives, the blessings that God promises, and the curses that God promises. Those are the three things that proceed out of the mouth of the Lord. The, the, The laws that God gives them, how you will worship, how you will live, what you're going to do, what you're not going to do. The blessings that God promises and the curses that God promises. Curses, yes. Curses. And we'll get to those towards the end of the study. God blesses, God curses. Why? Because He's in charge. Three things. So, on the other hand, what is the only thing that proceeded in the mouth of the Lord? It's one thing the Word of God. One. He's the one that proceeds from the Father, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Yeah? So, what is Jesus then for us? He's our Savior. But he's also our teacher. He's the one who gives us the law. He's the one that blesses. He's the one that curses. So his point here is that you can't just be paying attention to your material needs without putting them into a the much wider context that these good things that are coming to you are part and parcel of what God wants for you. And if you separate God from this equation, if you ignore him, Then you can't live. Because he's saying man will not live by bread alone. If you try to do that, you will not live. Physically, you will be alive. Spiritually, you will be dead. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. Moses sees this as a journey in which the Israelites are learning the ways of God. He sees it as a journey where the Israelites are a child being disciplined by his Father. So are we. So are we. Same journey for us. God is disciplining us. Take heed, lest you forget the Lord your God, by not keeping his commandments. When you have eaten and are full. That's why fasting is a good exercise, spiritually. That's why thinking through your days of doing a little sacrifice here and there, not taking something that satisfies you every time, helps you because you're not full, then your heart will be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you this day that you shall surely perish. Why would you perish? Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish. Listen carefully. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish. That's the inescapable reality. God is in charge. We are not. God raises nations. God brings low nations. God allows cities to prosper. God allows cities to be destroyed. God is in charge. We have to hear, have to fear, have to love, have to do. So, at the end of this study, I hope you're starting to appreciate the wisdom, the depth of knowledge, the experience that Moses gained in these years, and how he is teaching them about the essentials. His style, his ways of teaching, his ways of explaining are things to imitate for us. Because he is a man that truly... Gained wisdom as he walked with the Lord. And we're all called to imitate him. So let's finish with a word of prayer. And then we can take some questions. Yes. Absolutely. So every night, being able to be grateful to God. Saying thank you for at least three things. Like My wife and I, when we sit with the kids and we say prayers. We always ask them to say thank you for three things that Jesus did for them today. Just to teach them to... Remember that good things are coming to you every day. Absolutely. Remembrance of all the blessings that God gave us is part and parcel of this. However, some people may be going through a storm where they cannot even do that. Sometimes God withdraws that from them. Sometimes He puts them in a situation that's really tough and they cannot even pray. For instance, St. Teresa, Little Child Jesus went through something like that. And... What I was alluding to earlier was that even in situations such as this one, if you can't even do that, if you're not able to even get to that point, to be able to thank God for something because the pain you're going through is too big, if you can just do the small things, just the small things during the day, just one action, and repeatedly, God will let His face shine upon you. God will bless you. God will comfort you. Sometimes He he withdraws all that from you to help you grow in your faith, to deepen your thirst for him so he can come back and give you even more. So, it ebbs and flows. And uh, most of the time, what you said is absolutely true. We should all be able to sit down at the end of the day and thank God for some of the the good things that we receive today. And also thank him for all the trials he's sending our way. If we can see them as gifts from him, if we can understand that these, this is the hidden treasure, our whole perception changes. And then we realize that we're not a- a- at odds with anybody in the world. We're only at odds with God. We're like Jacob wrestling with the angel all night long. And that's also important. Yes, very good question. So the question is, uh, pride is one of these invisible uh, vices... If it's invisible, how can we know we have it, or can we fight it? And that's why God did not leave us alone, but gave us a guardian angel to guide us and illuminate our minds when we sit down and pray. Now, you're not alone looking at yourself. You have the help of a saint who's been alive for billions of years. So, therefore, it's very important for all of us to cultivate a true devotion to our garden angel. And if you have not yet done so, here's how you start. When you're driving, you're going somewhere, ask your garden angel to find your parking spot. Now, I'll, re- I'll repeat what I said. I've been, I've been giving this advice now for almost 10 years straight. I'll, I'll repeat one more thing. I don't want you to confuse your garden angel with a valet driver. He's not. Right? So, we have to be very respectful ...of our garden angel. You recognize that if tomorrow there is an alien that lands on earth... ...with three tentacles on his head and 14 eyes... ...that alien will be closer to us than, a, than an angel is. They are the most alien beings we can be dealing with. They don't have a body. They're purely spiritual. Each angel is a race of his own. They communicate in ways we can even begin to understand... And they're, so they're amazing, powerful beings. So, But, nevertheless, to cultivate that sense of devotion, we ask him reverently to help us find a parking, and he'll gladly do so. And once you re- recognize that he's there to help you, you'll start thinking mm, maybe there are more important things I need his help with. And then So when you sit down to do your your, um, uh, um, examination of conscience, daily examination of conscience, five minutes, like we did last time, invoke your guardian angel. Ask him to help you. And what is going to happen is that since the imagination is the faculty that is most angelic in us, it's the imagination with the angels communicate, good and bad angels, then as you sit to pray, there will be some images that will come to situations during your day. You go, oh, yeah, hmm, I shouldn't have done that. That's how you combat your pride yeah and then obviously spiritual directors if you're fortunate to find a good spiritual director he will be working on your pride and mine okay yes interesting yeah that's not exactly what i was saying let me let me repeat what i'm saying now i'll address your question here's what i'm saying sometimes we confuse we confuse a um, a moment of a moment where our emotions are stirred by the Holy Spirit and we feel really connected emotionally with Jesus and because of that, we think we're saints because we've had a great feeling, a great moment of prayer. And so we think that sainthood means coming to the church and sitting before Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong. That's an absolute central part to it. But if I walk outside and somebody says something to me, That I don't like. And I snap at him. All that time I spend in church is not producing the right fruits, right? That's all I'm saying. It's not about emotions with Jesus. It's about what we do for him. It's how we talk to others for him. How we behave with others for him. How we bear others for him that we show our love. Make sense? Uh, the relationship between a consecrated soul and Christ is very special. And those of us who are called to marriage, ultimately will we'll also gain that same experience with him, because in heaven all of us are connected to God in this way. But the marital relationship is something to be um, there's something extremely precious in God's eyes, and fruitful, and leads to sanctity. So marriage is a Royal road to sanctity and the call to consecrated life is also a royal road to sanctity, but it has one added bonus, and that is they are now really linked to Jesus directly, whereas we here don't yet. And He does all that for His good, for the good reasons that He uh, has um, for all of us. So The the point that I made earlier about this business of relationship with Him is that our relation to Christ must be based on this idea that we do what He wants us to do, especially in those things that we dislike. That's when we show our love to Him. It's not when I'm sitting in a church and I'm enjoying this moment of prayer, this great moment when I'm saying the rosary peacefully and everything is just perfect, that I showed my love to God didn't. He consoled me. It's when I'm outside or somewhere else and I'm dealing with someone who's causing me grief. If I make an effort towards this person because of Jesus, then I'm showing him that I love him. Is it possible that uh, someone who thinks that may have a calling to consecrated life find out that they don't? Absolutely. In fact, we know Some really good godly friends of ours who met at the monastery. He was thinking he's going to become a monk. She's been trying to be a nun for a while, and they ended up married, and Mother Teresa is in the picture. Absolutely. Absolutely, it's the will of God. No, 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 it is the will of God. Yeah. He made them meet this way, otherwise, they would have not met. Yeah. So somebody did not accept the path that God had for him, right? God. In Scripture, it's a very good question, actually, because we see it all through the Pentateuch. God has plan A, and plan B, and plan C, and plan Z, and plan AZ, and plan ZZ. He doesn't give up. He doesn't give up. God told Moses, go tell Pharaoh to allow my people to come here three days' journey to worship me. didn't say, let my people go. Just let him come and worship me, and then he can go back. But he knew that was not the plan that Pharaoh was going to accept. That was plan A. So plan B, you're going to do this. All the way through. The Israelites were supposed to go conquer the Holy Land. They, they chickened out. and no, We can't do this. Plan B, you'll die here. They will do it. God does not give up on us. Sometimes we wish he did. That's why we call him the hound of heaven. He hounds us all the time. So the bottom line is the journey will be more difficult. But still, that person, even though they made a, the, the wrong choice, can attain to holiness if they still follow, persevere, and do what they can every day. Yeah. So I'm talking about this relationship of love that we get into, where we discover God through that loving relationship. It is not something we can attain. I cannot force God to love me. I cannot force God to bestow His love on me. I cannot get God to do anything. So... Jesus himself says, no one come to me unless he's sent by my Father, by invitation only. There is the love of God that is salvific. God wishes everyone to be saved. But it doesn't, doesn't mean that God is going to allow everyone to enter into this very intimate relationship with him now. On earth. On earth. Absolutely. Yeah, it's not all the souls. I mean, look at St. John of the Cross. He'd be walking on in his Carmelite monastery with his other brother monks, and somebody says, God blessed be God. And here's Saint John taking off like a rocket, full ecstasy. Somebody said, Blessed be God. I haven't seen any one of us floating up here by saying blessed what does that mean? God invited that soul. He wanted him. It's a mystery. At the end of the day, love is a mystery. And I think we can justify it by our actions. Or by our good deeds? Because at the end of the day, we cannot do one good action, one good deed without God helping us do it. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So it's an anthropomorphism. It's a way for us to talk about God in terms we can use. God is utterly simple. There are no ideas in God. God doesn't have ideas. God is all being. Yeah. In the absolute mystery of the Trinity, there are no ideas. Hard, huh? That's God. God is utterly simple. In fact, when God, and this is our ways of talking, right? When God thinks about himself, yeah? Obviously, God can think about himself, yes? Yeah. Well, when God thinks about himself, guess what? That thought is God. It's called the word of God, All right? That's how God is. We, how, do we, how do we handle that? So, we use words that we can understand. So, what does it mean that God changed his mind? God told Moses, I'm going to, you know, let me destroy all of them and I'm going to start with you. Forget Abraham. You're going to be the head of the whole race. That was in Exodus, right? Moses told him, No, 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 you're not going to do such a thing because then Egyptians and others would say, You took them out of Egypt. You brought them here to destroy them. Then it says God changed his mind. Really, what happened is Moses changed. So that. God changed his mind, is that Moses arrived at the point that God from all all along wanted him to reach true knowledge about who God is. That even though these people have done everything they did, God will remain faithful and true to himself. And also he allowed Moses to express his love for God. So the God changed his mind is simply a recognition that we human beings have power of intercession with him and it accords with his will in ways we cannot fully understand. Yeah? We can't fully explain this because we're dealing with a divinity. But what we're saying is that in his will all along, there was an intercessor who was going to intercede for them. And because he interceded, that path was taken. Right? In fact, Our Lady herself tells us that in, uh, in the apparition of Fatima, that there are so many souls that go, that go to hell because no one prays and sacrifices for them. Meaning that if we pray and sacrifice more, we can save more souls. Did we change God's mind? It's hard, right? Yeah. It's just an expression of that God allows our free will to interact with His divinity and that we can be co redemptors under Christ. That our actions have impacts. They're important to God. Yeah? Okay. Very good. You can't even pray. Very good question. You can't even pray. It's so hard, you can't even pray. Anyone here been in that situation? Yeah? How is that possible? Let me see. It's like a physical ailment. Um, Let's say you have a herniated disc. Or I have a herniated disc. Try to move with that. It's kind of a little painful. Won't go very far. Yeah, I want to, my will wants to, my other faculties are unable. You have to distinguish between what the will wants and the ability. Christ himself says, the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. Yeah? Right. But sometimes God leaves you in desolation. He doesn't answer your prayer. So it's hard to bear. It becomes heavy. you confused. Because, like St. Paul says, we're not just dealing with ourselves. We're dealing with demons. That's when they unleash their attacks. You're weak. They're going to come pounding at you. Right? It's okay. You can't. Right? So a couple of things you have to do. Think of it this way. It's not that complicated, by the way, as you will see. Um... How many of you have life insurance? Why? But I mean, can't you just depend on God? Isn't God good? Isn't God good? Yes? God is good. Well, then if you die, he's not going to take care of the people you love? Why are you having life insurance? for? Because this is how he's going to take care of these people you love, right? What did you do? You took that insurance policy in case something happens. Yes? Okay. So what is the wise man and woman to do? In the moment when you can pray, what do you do? You get yourself a spiritual insurance. Yeah? So, what does that mean? Well, I'll give you one example. If you consecrate yourself to Our Lady, and don't do that lightly, by the way, but look into it. Read the book of St. Louis de Montfort, True Consecration to Mary. If you consecrate yourself to Mary, what does that mean? It means you are now her property. She owns you. You can't pray, yes? It's so hard, you cannot pray. Guess what? You have someone praying for you. That's the communion of the saints. That's the power of the communion of the saints, because God knows we're weak. Well, you have others praying for you. What you have to do is simply Ask them, and then trust; they will take care of it. Yeah, Lazarus was in that tomb for four days. It stunk in there. He could not pray. Yeah, Jesus knew he was dying. The moment he died, he could have showed up that second. He waited four days before coming, and then received two profession of faith from Martha and from Mary. And it is the tears of Mary. Another example, the widow. read this gospel not too long ago. She didn't say a word. She didn't ask for anything. Her son had died. She was going to bury him. She was a widow. Why do you think Jesus went and did this little miracle? Because, yes, why did he have compassion on her? Well, there are other people who are left with no one to care for them, but she saw in her the reflection of his own mother. So you see, even without somebody explicitly asking for Mary's intercession, she moves the heart of her son. Don't you think she's going to pray for you? Yes. You just have to believe. The storm will pass. It always does. You just have to hold on and believe and let them do the praying. You know what? Actually, just say that before I close. When you cannot pray, what is happening to you? Weak, yeah? Lazy? mm, Depends. I say when you cannot pray, not when you don't want to pray. When you cannot pray, what is happening to you? So you're growing in what? Humility. Because what is our greatest hidden pride? The power of our prayer. The power of our prayer. Well, hey, I got the power to pray. I come here and I sit and I pray. Hidden in there, lurking in there, is power. You see? This is why St. Louis de Montfort, in his consecration to Our Lady, if you're consecrated to her, he says you only pray for her intentions. Try that. Don't pray for your husband, children, loved ones. Just for mary 's intention, you 'll see how hard this is. That makes you grow in humility. Big time. So you see, it 's a gift from God when you go through those trials. What's the name of the book? Uh, True consecration to Mary by Saint Louis de Montfort. Especially when you have someone sick. What is sickness? It is a pathway to heaven. Look at it this way: somebody's sick. I'll give you two choices. He's not sick. He's full of health. He's doing great. He dies and he goes to hell. Second one, he's not sick. He's doing well. He's doing great. He dies and he spends 2,000 years in purgatory. Third option, he's going through sickness and then he manages to reach heaven right away. It takes faith to be able to see that. It doesn't mean we're not going to be sad. It doesn't mean it doesn't break our hearts. All of these things are made to help us see God's love. So when you're dealing with sickness, the best way to deal with a sickness is every time your heart is overflowing with pain, immediately turn around and then stand next to Mary at the foot of the cross. Because your understanding of the pain she went through is going to grow. And then your pain becomes a prayer. And she will offer you consolation. Make sense? God bless you.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Corbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.